0: Welcome to the Dover Download Podcast, your weekly look at what's going on in Dover, what's going in in Dover, and all things Dover-related. My name is Chris Parker, and I'm the deputy city manager here in Dover, and I'm going to walk you through all of that, plus more. Part of what we do here at the Dover Download Podcast is look at what's coming and what's happening right now, but we also want to take a look at what's happened in the past. Today, as part of that series, we're meeting with Don Bryan, local radio celebrity, to talk about Dover's radio history. Welcome, Don. Hey, thanks, Chris. How are you? Good. For the odd person that doesn't know you and doesn't recognize your voice, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about uh, how you ended up here today? Yeah. Well, I'm a local guy. I was uh, born here in
1: Dover, so one of the one of the local people, grew up listening to radio in Dover, listening to WTSN when I was a kid, went to high school, got into theater in high school, thought that's what I want to do with the rest of my life, I want to be a a theater person. I was all set to be a theater major in school. And somebody said, you know, radio is theater of the mind. Have you ever thought about that? And one thing led to another. And I was fortunate enough to uh, land a job in radio when I was 19 years old, a small station up in Peterborough. Was there for a few months, came to Dover at WDNH, which is now WOKQ, but it had just gone on the air in 1971. I got there in 72, spent a year and a half there, went to Haverhill, Massachusetts for a couple of months. And on the 4th of July of 1973, great day to start work, um, I began working at WTSN and I stayed there for 25 years. So the 4th of July has some meaning for you. <laughs> It does, indeed. It's, uh, yeah, this uh, next 4th of July will be the 50th anniversary of me starting working with uh, the people that I grew up listening to, which was quite
0: an honor, actually. I'm sure. It, it's probably one of those surreal events in your life. Uh,
1: yeah. You know, to go from being kicked out of class for talking too much to getting a job where they pay you to talk, it was uh, quite a thing. But the people that I listened to when I was a kid, the people, Paul the Blank, Jock McKenzie, yeah. Sandy McDonald, the people who I listened to that used to tell me when school was canceled yeah. back in the uh, early 60s, I was working with them. So
0: So at that age, what's it like doing talk sports and news as opposed to what you might think someone and and their young nineteen twenty would want to do more rock or do more music at that
1: time. Yeah, w- when I first started, my first job, well, my first job in Peterborough, it was a daytime station that played beautiful music. Mm-hmm. So very little talking. Yeah. I did uh, a little bit of news, very little talking. Other than that, when I came to Dover to DNH, I was the morning disc jockey. Okay, I was. Cousin Don, for a while. I don't know why, because it was a country station. And it was a 50,000-watt station, and I would work from 6 to noon on the air, six days a week, and playing country music. And left Haverhill, was another beautiful music station, WHAV, beautiful classic music. And then when I came to TSN, the job that I took was DJing three days a week and doing news three days a week it was uh, the only part-time news person position um i was the second news person uh, yeah. so that was my my first real start to doing news and i was there for about a year when the news director left they said you're the news director and from then on radio I doing is just fluid. news and talk yeah it's yeah. it's very different when you're in a small market radio you do everything. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I was doing news when I made news director, and then I also assumed the second sports position, which meant doing high school basketball, football, traveling around uh, the state, doing those things. So I, it was baptism by fire because I had never done play-by-play sports, but Jock McKenzie was there. Mm-hmm. who was the voice of UNH sports. Certainly, everybody knows the name and remembers the voice. Right. And he took me under his wing, showed me the ropes, so I did the high
0: school sports for, I don't know, four or five years. Well, as someone listening to, listening to you telling me of school was canceled or not i appreciate that story um you know how many people over
1: the years um when they say oh i remember i grew up listening to you you used to cancel school for me <laughs> that's the thing i remember <laughs> that people remember most is not open say, mic not nah, 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 nah. open mic was a, a great vehicle that was another thing that i started when i when i assumed the open mic job yeah. doing talk radio which was very transformative I mean, it it allowed me to say my opinion on things, but my my role, I thought, was more of a moderator, not to uh, express my opinion on everything, but to allow people to express their opinions. So, but that was it was a great learning experience, and I think that more than other things have helped me along the way.
0: The uh, I'm curious, and and I I have a slight answer to this for myself, but I'm curious from your standpoint. Do you? How do you differentiate what it's like to be a, a news junkie versus playing country music in the, on the morning <laughs> show? Like what, what, it's a different mindset. Oh,
1: definitely. I, I had, when I first started, I never thought of uh, the news side of it. I mean, I would r- do a newscast on the air, but I always thought, nah, I want to be the personality person, want to be the, the disc jockey. And I did that with country At first, and then beautiful music. And then when I started at TSN, I was doing nights on... I'm trying to think how it worked. I worked Friday night from 6 to midnight, Saturdays from 10 to 2, and then Sundays, 6 to midnight as a jock. And then the other three days, I was doing afternoon news. I think I, I got more pleasure out of the news stuff. There's an adrenaline rush that you get when there's a breaking news story. And when you find that you are telling people something that they didn't know before, something that our philosophy always was the news you need to know and the news you want to know. So in those two categories, it could be anything from, uh, you know, an automobile accident to the trash schedule. Right. has changed this week you need to know that you need to know that the tax rate has been set um or you want to know right um, i guess you need to know that too but um you know so back. there was there was an adrenaline rush to doing that and i found that that gave me much more pleasure than you
0: know introducing a, a record so it's not quite less Nessman than the hog farm report but... oh no
1: no and and things changed dramatically over the years As i say when i started it was uh a a one-and-a-half-person news department at TSN. I was able to hire a second person full-time after a couple of years, and then the station started to evolve as more talk and news. In the mid to late 80s, Rush Limbaugh started to come into popularity. I think he was the first show that we had on as a, a talk show in the afternoon. Sure. Um, and Dr. Dean Dell, I think he was on from 11 to 12 or in the morning or whatever. So we started transitioning gradually to that. Eventually, I was able to hire a third full time news person, which was crazy. Wow. And then in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, we went to a four person. Mm-hmm. Four full-time news people at that station. By then, we had transitioned away from disc jockeys. There were no no people playing music on the station. But it was basically uh, a full news sports talk operation. And it was exciting. You know?
0: The curious thing, and it's funny hearing you talk about the, the variety of roles... I don't know if we've talked about this before. When I was in college, I was a DJ at the, the school radio station. I ended up being the uh, general manager for two years, but it was the type of thing exactly as you described. You say you're one thing, but you do about 100 different things. Yeah. And uh, freshman year, they gave out shows based on your um, longevity, as it were. So freshmen had no choice. <laughs> so my first show was 10 to 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. on Friday nights. Uh, which is an awesome time for college students. A, they're listening, and B, you have better things to do. We did that, and then did Thursday nights too, same time frame. And then I said it'd be great to do a morning show, and about eight different people said, "There's a reason why we just don't really play anything until 8:30, 9 o'clock, because no college student is up that early." But you want to do it, you go ahead and do it. So I, I did that for a little bit as well. You're, you're right. It's. There's so much evolving and there's so much difference. The thing I always found was there were certain things you had to play that I really didn't care to listen to or play, but that's not your role in that spot. Your role is to play something in the morning. I had more freedom in the morning. It was more play what you want to play. And there's less people listening. So they, they cared less. Play them. what? Yeah. Play what you like. Yeah. Yeah. That. And how long did you do that? So I did the morning show for a, about a year. I did the, the, uh, shockingly, the Friday nights, I did almost all four years. Wow. Um, and we involved it to a jazz and blues show because it was and it was the only show like that on this college radio station. So we my friend and I, we did it almost all four years uh, in that format. And it was it was a great thing. I ended up doing a, another show. I think my senior year, I had a different schedule that allowed me to do a essentially a four to seven PM show, uh, midweek. So I did that and that was much more college radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was sort of more what you think of as back and forth, DJ banter and that sort of thing. And it was, it was a, it was a fun time. I ended up, but uh, actually I, when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, I sent my, uh, audition tape as it were to a couple of the, the shark and a couple other radio stations around here, never got a call or anything, but so I qualify myself as a, it was Quite a good, good uh, experience for me, but for no one else. Do you still have that audition tape? I might. I I might. It's cassette, uh, but yeah. Well, I,
1: I found my early audition tapes, reel-to-reel, I mean, reel, and I said, I wouldn't have hired me. If, if someone would have sent me this tape, I certainly would not have hired that person. My first job that I got up in Peterborough, Peterborough, I was lucky because a person that I had gone to school with got a job there, and he and I were friends, and he called me and said, hey, there's an opening why don't you uh, check it out? And I was fortunate enough to get that job at that time. Again, not a lot of talking, so it didn't make any difference what my, my audition tape sounded like. On the audition tape, I think I called myself Steve Brown. Ooh. Yeah. Hey. I used to love 50s music, yeah. so I think a lot of that audition tape. I was uh, introducing stuff that people now wouldn't
0: even recognize. Sort rockabilly. Very, very yeah. old. Nash. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm hearing correctly, you're going to be a theater major. Yeah. It it sounds like you didn't go to college at all. You just went right into...
1: Well, I did. I went to a um, broadcast school in Boston. I was supposed to go to Emerson. I was accepted at Emerson. I was thinking that would be beautiful. I went for an interview there in 1968, uh, going into my senior year in high school. And it was the height of racial tension in Boston. And when I went in for my interview, as I'm doing my interview, they're scurrying around, loading everything into the safe, all the papers and everything, because there was going to be a racial protest on campus. And I was 17 years old at the time and went, I don't know if I like the big city. I, you know, having grown up in in Rawlinsford and Summersworth, being in Boston at at that time just didn't seem right. So I ended up going back to Boston a year later to uh, a radio broadcasting course, and it's I think, was six months mm-hmm. teaching you how to <laughs> break and breathe when you're doing a radio commercial and all those things that I guess in some way did help because I was able to land my first job because of that.
0: The opportunity, Peterborough, DNH, TSN, with Hayroll thrown in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point, do you think, I want to give the, the, the Boston... Uh, another chance and and apply for a a station? Or do you do you think at some point, I'm pretty happy at TSN, I'm going to stick around? Was there a if I don't go now, I'm not going to go type moment? Um, No, I had several opportunities. Um,
1: I'm a real family guy. My family was all here. Um, Haverhill was as far away from my family as I had ever been. I was at the station in Haverhill And crazy enough, two phone calls at the exact same time, Jim Gelinas, Jim Sebastian from TSN, who I had worked with at WDNH, Mm -hmm. called me up, said, we've got an opening here. At the same time, I got a call from a radio station in Fitchburg, Massachusetts, saying, we have an opening. We've heard you. Would you be interested in coming here? And I'm going, Okay, which way do I want to go? And I went to the uh, back home to uh, Fahrenheit. Family, friends, safe haven—you know the people that I had grown up listening to, working with them. What a great opportunity it would have been! So I did. I had I had other opportunities over the years to sure. uh, to go to other stations. I was offered jobs in uh, Virginia. I just didn't have that motivation, I guess. I did apply to BZ, which uh-huh. was the station. I mean, uh, I bet, yeah, n- newsperson BZ. Yeah. And Gary LaPierre, who was the morning news person um, at BZ for, seems like, forever, yeah. actually his very first job in radio was at WTSN. <laughs> he, he was uh, working there and then went to our sister's station in Manchester at the time, and he was working there. And there was a very famous murder, babysitter murder, I think it was about. And he was doing a lot of reporting and was feeding stories to the Boston station, they said, hey, this guy's good. So they they brought him from Manchester to BZ, and that's where he stayed for the rest of his his career. I spent a day with him. In Boston, I communicated with him a couple of times, and he invited me down and went. I spent uh, an entire day with him at the radio station, and then throughout the day, but never got the call saying, "Yeah, we heard that audition tape. Yeah, weren't you Steve Brown at one time? <laughs> <laughs> We're looking for yeah. Steve Brown. Yeah. Is he yeah.
0: available?" Yeah. So at some point, you did switch stations. You went back to the rebranded DNH. Yeah. After 25 years um, at
1: TSN, things had uh, changed in the last three or four years that I was there. Um, ownership changed. Management changed. The philosophy of the new manager was much different than what we had over a 25-year period built that brand to be. And with those differences of opinion And uh, the opportunity coming up, Roger Wood, who was the news director at OKQ for a number of years, decided he was going to step down. I applied and took over that position in late 1998. So 25 years at TSN and then moved down the street to, uh, I think, it was about three-eighths of a mile further (laughs) of a commute from my house to uh, OKQ.
0: Different. Experience, I'm sure, but different attitudes. Different. Uh, was it just a refresh, or or was it just a whole new ball game for you? Um, very much a whole different ball game because the
1: emphasis at OKQ was music. Yep. Um, they were uh, strongly committed to news at the time. Um, we had uh, two full time news people there, and then several part timers, and they had um a, a strong news presence. But that waned over the years. Also, like everything, consolidation, change of ownership, and the philosophies changed dramatically. Sure. Um, so
0: what are some of the uh, stories you remember being a part of or reporting on? over your your career. Oh. Anything jump out as, like, I can't believe we made a big deal out of this and it really wasn't a big deal? Uh,
1: well, I don't know if there were things that weren't a big deal. I can remember being on the air doing an interview with a gentleman and we we would break coverage at TSN to cover launches of the space shuttle or anything and the Challenger, uh. of course, the, uh, the disaster that happened with the Challenger. And... I was just starting the Open Mic program. My guest was there, and we never went back to Open Mic. We went full coverage, certainly, of of what happened. And interestingly enough, I had spoken to Krista McAuliffe several weeks before and had booked her to be on Open Mic when she came back. We were going to talk about her experiences and You know, know, the excitement that she, that was in her voice when we talked about what she was about to do to go into space. And we were so looking forward to sharing those experiences on the air. That never happened on the air um, on September 11th, uh, 2001. We were, um, I was at OKQ. We were just going um, into a newscast at the top of the hour um, when the news started to break about what happened. Um, So I was on the air talking about the first tower being hit, and as I'm talking on the air TV monitor uh, next to me, I watched as the second plane hit the second tower. And I paused, and I was looking at the TV, and the two morning hosts who were on the other side of the glass saying, okay, keep talking. And I went, a plane has just hit the second tower. And from that point on, it was, you know, just wall-to-wall coverage. So those are the two stories, certainly, that that come to mind that I was actually on the air talking when those uh, events actually happened.
0: And and really, from a cultural standpoint, you add in the Kennedy assassination and you probably have the three things over the past 60 years that people know where they were when they happened. Exactly. Uh, I wasn't
1: quite in radio, um, (laughs) but I remember exactly where I was because I was in junior high school and... In class, and the teacher said, "President Kennedy has been shot." And I guess I naively thought must have been a hunting accident or whatever. It wasn't with Dick Cheney. Uh, <laughs> 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 and um, my older brother, who drove us to school in the morning, when we got out and we turned on the radio in the car, and then learned what happened. So yeah, you remember yeah. where you were at uh, those particular moments.
0: Looking back at it, are there things that you, not necessarily regrets, but you were, you mentioned you could have gone to Fitchburg. Yeah. Are there things like that that you look back and say, that's a turning point and I'm glad I made the choice I made? I would not change anything
1: from the way it turned out. That's great. You know, a lot of people have, have said, how come you never made it big like Tom Bergeron? I hear that. Yeah. <laughs> um. And Certainly n- not too many people make it that to that level, but I wouldn't change anything because if, if one thing changed, whatever I have ripple. right now, yeah, that ripple effect, I would not have met my wife, I would not have my children, I would not have my grandchildren. And, you know, when you think about it in those terms, you know, I, am, I am so extremely happy with um, what I did yeah, um, and where I am right now, I wouldn't wouldn't want to change it. And I did work with Tom Bergeron, by the way. When I was at HAV in Haverhill, he was a high school senior, I believe, um, and his English teacher was the news guy at the radio station, and, and Tom worked there part time. So I knew him when I knew him when. when. I knew him when.
0: Speaking of knowing things when, as we look at uh, the upcoming. 400th celebration here in this city are there things as you say you, you grew up here are there things you look back and you, you they jump out to you as the change points for the community uh, um good the, good or bad uh, you know. yeah the urban renewal program was huge
1: when, when they started to change the face of downtown Dover, and not only uh, the physical face, but people's perception of Dover. I'm right. sure you remember it used to be Portsmouth-by-the-Sea, Dover-by-the-Smell. Dover yep. um, you know, the tannery being right there um, along Central Avenue. I think when the urban renewal changed the the face of Dover, that made a major difference. And then you started seeing some of the the structural things that happened um Building the Chestnut Street Bridge yeah. was uh, huge, <laughs> and of course, now for the next couple of months, we're not going to have the Chestnut Street right. Bridge because of the the reconstruction work. So it's like going
0: back in time. Um, hey, when you build something and then don't touch it for fifty years, uh, sometimes it needs to be
1: yeah rehabbed. Um, but I think I think urban renewal was huge. The changes that we went through in the f- forms of government i mean dover's always been a city manager form of government and there were some times when people didn't like that concept at all they would have voted definitely you know some of the the political people in town to go back to a strong mayor form of government they wanted that that power watching that
0: was interesting did you ever think of getting involved in the politics, getting uh, running for council, running for school board? I I was approached several
1: times about okay. doing that, and I sort of shied away from it. And the last time that occurred, I was at OKQ. Someone asked, and it was a seat that was vacated, and it would have been, would you be interested in serving? Out the term. Um, yeah. And the... Uh, the powers that be at the time said, well, you might have to take yourself off the radio for a while. And I can't. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I just had a, a quick vision of you emceeing the inauguration of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Reading my own biography. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's, you know, those are the things that I enjoy
1: doing. Yeah. You know, we're doing the, the inauguration and, and the debates The the candidates debates, and I've worked obviously very, very closely with the chamber over a number of years, all of the events that, Mm -hmm. you know, this is put a microphone in front of me and put a crowd in front of me and something kicks in. Don't know what that is, that adrenaline rush. Again, when I talk doing news and well, yes, performing, having a live audience, because I still I've continued doing theater over the uh the years since I left high school, did theater with my children, which was absolutely incredible. But yeah, there's that adrenaline rush, I think, the same as when a breaking news story comes up, performing in front of a live audience, whether it's theater or just being being me in front of uh,
0: the audience. Maybe we should do the podcast in front of a live audience. It'd be uh, You know? Yeah, you know, we could start with that recorded in front of a live audience. Uh, uh, you know, the the quiet
2: applause.
1: <laughs> Or you, know, right. you, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know that's the part you don't like. Wait a that's yeah, right. that's the part you don't like. what the editing's for. <laughs> uh, we want reality. And I, <laughs> when we talk about reality, we 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 mentioned before we started talking about an event that happened at WTSN back yeah. in the uh, the mid seventies when it was an all music station. Jim Sebastian, real name Jim Gelinas, but Sebastian on the radio, um, and Paul LeBlanc myself, B.J. Hickman, all took part in, in uh, the creation of what was called the Fantasy Winter Concert. Jim came up with this idea that we were going to have a concert on frozen Alton Bay, <laughs> and it just developed into such an elaborate thing that we had rented an inflatable dome even came up with the name of a company. I remember they were from Minot, North Dakota, only because Jim's friend lived in Minot, North Dakota. And we were going to have a concert on the lake. And we started with some, you know, bands, not mediocre, but they were well-known bands. But the culmination of that was Paul McCartney came up on stage, did uh, a set, George Harrison joined him, Ringo Starr comes up, starts playing the drums, and then suddenly John Lennon is on stage. And the Beatles have reunited in this inflatable dome on Lake Winnipesaukee. I mean, we had the the screaming crowds in the background. We were were suspended above it in this uh, broadcast booth looking down at the stage. And the crowd was going wild. And it was every... Every commercial break that we took, which was about every 10 minutes or so, we would do a disclaimer saying, you're listening to the WTSN Fantasy Winter Concert. It is a fantasy. It's not happening. But close your eyes and you are there. Didn't make any difference. People were driving up, driving around Lake Winnipesaukee. We got a call from the Alton Bay Police Department saying, what are you doing The traffic up here is absolutely crazy. People are so upset that they can't find this concert. And we were saying, oh, I guess people are listening. Yeah, it was like war of the worlds. Um, People believe what they want to believe. And people actually believe that the Beatles had gotten together (laughs) in Alton, New Hampshire. And we just happened to be broadcasting it live at our little radio station. So that that was a bit of... Of a fantasy that was an adrenaline rush.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. On that on that note, uh, one of the things we ask people as we wrap up these sessions is uh, if you can think about three things that make Dover unique. Whether it's the people, the place, an event, a idea, concept, anything that, that jumps to your mind that you think makes this community stand out, or why you stay in this community, and your wife and children living here could be a reason. Yeah, obviously. Um, th- the fact that
1: that Dover is such a close-knit community, I think there is a great core of people who care a great deal about Dover. They always have. There have been people who have donated their time and, in some cases, a great deal of money behind the scenes to make Dover a better place. Things like the Kachiko Arts Festival that got this tremendous boost financially from a benefactor back when it first started, that allowed it to continue. People that that believe in the community and continue to believe in the community. I think that's that's one of the things that um, I've always found very comforting about Dover. The fact that historically Dover is incredible. You know, the seventh settlement, the seventh longest permanent settlement in in the nation. And although we're we're having this little battle with Portsmouth about, wait a minute, they're having their 400th also, uh, but I guess it's the permanent, right. continuous settlement part that Dover excels at. And looking at the future, looking at the waterfront, I think the waterfront is going to be a tremendous boon for Dover once the development kicks off and we actually start seeing that. I think that's going to open up great things for Dover and its future, and I'm excited about that for my children, my my grandchildren, looking at Dover, and I hope they they stay part of this community and actively in the community.
0: Well, on that note, that as the voice of Dover, I want to thank you for being here, you being the voice, not me. Uh, I appreciate <laughs> you taking the time out today and and uh, speaking with us,
1: uh, thank you so much. And what was your persona when you were doing the morning? Were you doing uh, soft jazz with uh,
0: <laughs> Chris Parker?
1: Hello, no, no, no. welcome.
0: No, so it was jazz and blues at night, uh, and then it was it was definitely an alt rock. This is the uh, this was what ninety ninety four ninety five in there. It was definitely uh, much more of an energetic. Get your butt out of bed. Persona. Yep. And did you have any reaction?
1: Did any of the students come up to you and say, "Play something soft," you know? I'm still.
0: uh, (laughs) I had a rough night last night. No, I never got that. And it was, you know, it was college, so uh, it was also low power. Mm. Uh, So I also uh, one of my roles was to be the engineer that went to the the dorms to check on the the broadcast equipment in each dorm. Like I said, as you uh, have inclined or implied, there is a a jack of all trades aspect to that style of radio, and so not too much reaction. It was it was very much a morning show for me and uh, my roommate, who had to get up with me at the same time. So now that you are in the position you are in, um, you say,
1: "Well, when I'm when I'm done this this line of work, a- when, I,
0: I want to get. I want to be on the radio. If that was an option, I would definitely. I think it'd be fun." It would be, uh, and especially, uh, you know, in some ways doing this podcast has filled some of that for me. Yep. But um, though I would like more music than just me. Okay. So So, uh, our next uh, job is a community radio station.
1: We'll talk offline. All right. We're there. Thanks, Chris.
0: With almost 400 years of history, Dover's got a lot to tell. Up next, Mike Gillis is going
2: to walk us through what happened this week. On January 26, 1907 fire struck in the heart of downtown Dover, ripping through the Kachiko Manufacturing Company's Mill Number 1. The fire was one of the city's deadliest and costliest, putting the brakes on one of the city's largest employers and industries. This week in Dover History, we're going to let local historians Mark Lino and Tom Hindle tell the story of the Great Blaze. Lino and Hindle collaborated on a book about the blaze, "Factory on Fire, which was published in 2017. The book was the result of Lino's extensive research on the fire and featured dozens of photos from Hindle's collection, some never before seen. The first voice you'll hear is Mark Lino, followed by Tom Hindle. Here they are to tell the story.
3: The fire started in January 26, 1907. Uh, here at Mill No. 1, Cochico uh, Mills, uh, now known as the Wash Street uh, Mills. The fire actually began, ironically, through a uh, sprinkler system going off. And it broke for no apparent reason, no known reason at least, uh, on the fourth floor. And the fire was actually seen starting on the third floor. It was believed that the fire had started by the belt getting wet and rubbing against the wooden boxes that protected the belt as it went through the floors, causing sparks to go into the cotton. And then uh, the mill caught fire at that point. The the fire was on a very cold day. Um, The uh, temperature at that time ranged from 25 below to zero, that's the warmest they got, and the fire lasted roughly 36 hours. Um, It was declared out uh, roughly after 58 hours, and during that time, the temperature never got above zero. Fire resulted in seven deaths and over 30 injuries that we know of. Uh, There probably more because they were uh, a lot of the people that were injured went to local uh, pharmacies, local doctors, went home, Um, so there's no actual record of the number of injuries Um, but for a mill that had 600 people during the fire
4: with seven uh, deaths it's it's a miracle that uh, people got out as they did the uh, photography at at this uh, point early 1900s uh, the photographers were using both cameras on tripods uh, but the emulsions also allowed for handheld cameras so alfred drew was one of the primary photographers did both he had some the morning after he'd actually set up a tripod and take pictures but a lot of the Photos that he tried to take during the activity, he would use a handheld camera. But you can only imagine, again, with the cold and all these same conditions, that uh, you can only imagine the shutters freezing. Uh, You know, they had to, there were view cameras, you had to look through the back, focus, put the film in. The film was glass, glass plates, they're in film holders. It was It's amazing that we have the photographs. It really is amazing that we have photographs because even today, with the modern equipment, you have to take certain precautions when you're in really cold weather. So you can only imagine these early uh, cameras, and the cameras were bellows. um, You know, you had to focus these things. Um, So we're pretty fortunate that these guys knew what they were doing and able to uh, produce uh, the images. It was a police department
3: history that led me to the mill, and I wanted to learn more about this fire. Um, because I've always driven by the mill and walked by the mill and all that. and like, I didn't, never knew anything about the fire. So I started researching more and more on that, and I figured if I get all this research, I'm going to put it into a book so it's not lost. Because it's like hidden history as far as I'm concerned for Dover, because like I said, a lot of people go and drive by this building every day and may not know about the fire. And um, I knew through Tom years ago that I had mentioned to him that you know I was actually thinking about the factory and fire book, based on the reveal that we did back in 2006, because a lot of that research was based on what I had done prior to that. And uh, Tom said, yeah, you know, we get to it, let me know and we'll work on the pictures for you.
4: Photographs taken on the morning uh, after the fire uh, is a really good illustration showing the only fire escape uh, on the entire mill, and that was at the end of the L. So folks that were fortunate enough to get out onto the roof and make their way to the back end of the L closest to the river, and then we're able to climb down this ladder. But this photograph shows the ladder caked with ice, and I can I can only imagine you're climbing down four stories on this icy metal ladder uh, in clothes that were designed to be working in 60 and 70 degree weather. I, I can't even visualize. Uh, and people, of course, trying to jump out of some of the windows. And what they did was they took uh, some of the raw cotton and piled it in piles at the bottom of the fire escape and under some of these windows so that if people should fall, uh, it would help to break the fall. And this photograph actually shows uh, a pile of, of uh, cotton and stuff to try to break the file, but it's an excellent photo. And also just to the right of the uh, fire escape ladder is one of the firemen's ladder. That only reached the third floor, uh, but you can see that also is caked with ice. It's just incredible that uh, these people were able to even use this
2: equipment at all. Thanks to Mark and Tom for sharing the story of Dora's Great Blaze. The interview you just heard is from a video that appeared when the book was published. That video, which includes more information about the fire and the book, is linked in the show notes for this episode.
0: Thanks for listening to the Dover Download this week. If you like what you heard, subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. And if you have something you want to hear a topic on, let us know. Finally, this is just one of the many ways we share information about the City of Dover. You can subscribe to the Dover Downloads email newsletter every week or other newsletters that we have by going to the City of Dover homepage, www.dover.nh.gov. Have a great week.